Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. It's so good to be here. Uh, We were here the first, first service, which is in that was it Solid Rock Church? No, what's it called? Warehouse. Yeah. Uh, we were with you there for the first kind of trial service, and then we had one chance to worship with you here. And it's great to just see the congregation take root, take hold, begin to develop your own unique mission and personality and culture all for the Lord here. Uh, and we're, we really have been looking forward to coming out. Um, so, okay, so now as a church, you're here on the threshold of Mission Aurora Week. I see Matt Woodley back here. He's going to be preaching each night for Mission Aurora. And uh, what is the mission of Mission Aurora? Anybody, you can just call it out as best you understand it. Serve the community. community. Okay. Go serve, tell. Okay. Is that like a phrase that's used? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It is now. Well, I want to bring uh, a message to you this morning that will encourage each one of you and and kind of prepare you spiritually for this week of mission. Um, I know some of you, your schedules are crazy, and so you're going to contribute through the the behind-the-scenes work of prayer this week. That's so essential. Embrace that. Some of you, you're called to be out there in the kids' clubs or in the backyard things or the carnival or the service projects all over town. And uh, I want to equip you spiritually from the Word of God for whatever your part in this amazing mission is. And to do that, we're going to look at when Jesus had the chance to define his mission, what he was on mission about, what did he say? What, what did he choose? So uh, in Luke, in the gospel that Karen read from Luke 4, Jesus is back in his hometown. He's been doing ministry. He's, he's getting well-known because he's doing some miracles, and people can't wait to hear him back home when he finally returns home. So he's there in the synagogue, so you want to picture maybe dozens of Jewish men sitting on the floor on mats. Most of them have black, wavy hair, except for the ones that are going bald and uh, <laughs> the ones that are turning gray. And the women would have stood around the edges and uh, listened. And after the prayers, they get to the reading of the prophets, And so they invite Jesus as kind of the hometown guy who's making it and becoming a very popular rabbi to come and read from the scroll. So they pull the scroll out of the cabinet and hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he can unroll it to wherever he wants. And he chooses to unroll it to Isaiah 61. And here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He he gives his entire identity and mission in two verses. I don't know if any of you have been in business where you've been asked to come up with like an elevator speech. 
for you getting a job or whatever your, it is that your business does, but they say it's got to be short, right? It's got to be under 30 seconds because that's how long the elevator ride is going to be. You can read this text in 23 seconds. Then they say, and it should be really unique to you. Like an elevator pitch should be totally true of just of you. And Jesus says, you've been waiting for centuries for somebody to come who would have the Spirit's anointing on him to bring the year of the Lord's favor. You've been waiting someday, knowing someday you've been praying, would Messiah come? And through all the troubles and trials you've been waiting, I'm it. And then, is it something uh, that excites passion? An elevator speech should excite passion. And Jesus says, you want passion? I go to people who, have, who are destitute and broken, and I help them. Um, that's my heart. And so some of you, maybe the main thing you needed to hear today is that if you've been beaten down by life in different ways, maybe you have kids with special needs, or you have a marriage that's really rough, or maybe one just ended and you've you're just devastated. Um, maybe you have a health condition, you have finances that don't work or whatever. Jesus came for you. He defined who I am, what I'm about, the heartbeat of what I do is for you. I was up in Minnesota one time when I was working for Leadership Journal, uh, which is for pastors published by Christianity Today, and I met this pastor of a large, thriving megachurch up there. He's very well known. If I mentioned his name, probably half or more of you would know who he is. And we got talking about another church in town there, a church called Church of the Open Door. And when he brought that up in conversation, my ears perked up because that church had had some connections with Church of the Resurrection. They had sent healing prayer ministers to some of our conferences. And so they had kind of a similar calling as Resurrections to heal those who are brokenhearted and to patiently walk with those who are battered and oppressed in different ways. And so, in fact, they had the name in town, Church of the Open Sore. Uh, Because it was very much the place where if you're broken and you're messed up, that's where you go to church. And so I was talking to this mega church pastor, and he said, yeah, they're growing, but he goes, you can't build a church on people like that. And I was like, buddy, Jesus builds a church on that. He's like, when I look for people to build a church, that's who I go for. I want people, that's, my, that's where my heartbeat is. That's where I want to be, is, is the people like that. So, it, I, you know, it just strikes me that Jesus could have chosen so many other texts in Isaiah. He could have chosen Isaiah 53, he's borne our griefs and taken our sorrows, right? And that would have been really true to his call and mission. But when he had to choose one text, he said, this is what I'm about. And so what I want to point out here is that it is essential to the identity and mission of Jesus Christ that you proclaim good news to the poor. That's what he does. That's a part of what he does. Now, this is a simple historical fact. You know that he himself grew up in a poor family, right? His parents could barely afford the sacrifice for the newborn. They did like the lowest level one you can do. Um, And he grew up without a lot of money. He didn't have a lot of opportunities. He didn't have travel. He didn't have European vacations. I mean, you know what I mean? He just didn't have any of that. And and he spent his life, almost all of his conversations, his miracles, his ministry is among people who are just getting by. And so he gets that. And, And so since it's essential to his identity and mission, now I want you to listen to these three statements. 
because there's what preachers would call a necessary implication of this. Okay, it's essential to Jesus' identity and mission to proclaim good news to the poor. Now listen to these three statements. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Every student who is well-trained will be like his teacher. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm sending you to do what I do. I want you to be like what I am like. I want you to do the works like I do. And since it's essential to my identity and mission to bring good news to the poor, it is essential to your identity and my identity and our corporate identity as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who are united to him, that we proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the reason I mention that is that it took me a long time to get this. I grew up in Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches, and they gave me a lot of good stuff, but they did not give me this. Here's what I took away from years of listening to those sermons and kind of hanging out with them, is that what's essential is that you believe the right things, that you have correct biblical doctrine for your life. And that is essential, right? I mean, we'd all say that's great, it's phenomenal. And then they said, it is essential that you have right living, that you, you not be a person of cheating and gossip and all these things that are come naturally to us, but that we learn a new way of living in Christ and by the power of his spirit. And I was like, that's essential too. But you know what I picked up is? It is optional. It is extra credit. It's for the few, the elite, the Marines, but it's not really for most of us that we proclaim good news to the poor. If that works out, that's fine, and we'll applaud, and we'll show your video, but that's not really what Christian living is basically about. And what I want to say is, it is meat and potatoes Christianity to proclaim good news to the poor. It's a part of what it means to be Christian. There's no, like, option. You can't opt out. It's not an elective class. It's core curriculum. In fact, there's an example of this in Galatians 2, when Paul uh, gets going in his ministry, and he's got an unusual ministry out on the edges, preaching to non-Jews. And so he has to go up and kind of get permission to do this. And so in Galatians 2, he does. He meets with James and Peter and John, the sort of three leaders of the Christian movement. And he says, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So, like, Paul's not even going to get permission to go preach to the unevangelized unless he's also taking care of the poor. Like, that is like, we don't even want you to do that mission work, as important as that is, unless you're also going to take care of the poor, because that's a part of what it means to preach. That's a part of what it means to be a Christian. It, and, and I read this amazing quote from Hippolytus, who was an early church leader and, uh, in the early 200s in Rome, and here's what he says. He says, when those who are about to receive baptism come to baptism, their lives should be examined. And here's what you check out to see, are they ready to be baptized? Are they really ready to enter the Christian community and take on the responsibilities of mature Christian discipleship? And here's what he says, whether they lived uprightly, whether they honored the widows, and widows in that culture were uniformly poor. They didn't have like social security checks, okay? Whether they visited the sick, whether they were thorough in performing good works. So Apollos is saying, don't even baptize somebody if they're not engaged enough to show that kind of life because that's the life they're going to be living after they get baptized. So if they have no inclination for that early on, they're not ready. 
Give them a little more time and let them see if, that, if they're in for that. Now, I think we have largely lost that sense. We really see it as elective or optional or extra credit. And yet you and I get to join Jesus in this amazing rescue mission of proclaiming good news to the poor, of setting free the oppressed. And so in the time I have left, I want to just say, think at this with you, which is how exactly do we join Jesus in proclaiming good news to the poor? What is good news to the poor? Because there are some ways Christians approach the poor in an attempt to preach good news, and it's not as good as we think it is. And so I want to unpack that a little bit, okay, and just give you some kind of pastoral wisdom. And since you're in a series on Luke, I'm going to draw from two passages in Luke that shed some light on this. Okay, so two, two points I want to make about how we proclaim good news to the poor. There could be many. I just chose these two because I think they're important. As we all kind of learn how to do this better, first is this. We proclaim good news to the poor when we say, you're invited. I read these amazing interviews that the World Bank did with poor people around the world. Poor people from like Moldova, Latvia, all these other countries in the world. And they said, what is it like to be poor? Because they wanted to try to tailor their programs to address the way the poor perceive their need, right? And here's what the poor people said. They did not bring up money, first thing. Which we'd think, it means I don't have enough money. I don't have the financial resources. You know what they said? It feels lonely. I'm afraid. I'm isolated. I'm cut off from people. I can't afford to go do things with people. That's what it's like. It's not just lack of money, it's the isolation that comes with that. And, and so, you know, we, we live this way where the poor are isolated by their poverty, and, and we, one of the most rich gifts we can give them is to say, you're invited. But we live in a place where uh, it's better here in Aurora, actually, than in Wheaton, where Karen and I live, where we carefully segment off the poor and hide them and all the sub, like I can go, I can point to a subdivision and I can tell you exactly what the housing range values are for that subdivision and they're within a very tight band, right? So what that means is like, I could go a month without intentionality, I could go a month and never have contact with a poor person except unless they bust my table at a restaurant or if I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles that month and stand in line where we're all equalized, right? Because we all need the driver's license. Okay, and in fact, this was really convicting to me. At Res, a number of our members moved into Parkside, which was a lower income apartment community in, in Glen Ellen because it's a very diverse, ethnically fascinating place to live with people from Burma and all over the world. And, um, and so, oh, we probably had 10 or 12 different people from our church just decide to move in there. And they started telling me about it and what it was like to live at Parkside. And I was like, well, where exactly is it? I had lived in the area for 20 years, and I had no idea where it was. None. And you know what? It's only one block off this main highway that I drive every single day. It was completely invisible to me. And, and that really convicted me. I was like, man, I am like, I, I don't have the relational connections to say to somebody, you're invited. And yet Jesus says... You, you, with the poor, it's good news to say, you're invited. We want you here. And, and he gives this advice. Now, I want to point out that this advice that he's giving here, this is from Luke 14, 
verses 12 through 14, is not a parable, is not a metaphor, okay? There's no poetry here. He's just giving like counsel. He's just saying, here's some advice. When you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. He's not saying you can never do that, but don't invite only them. Why? If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I got a great picture of this. Some of you know Matt and Diana Sorens who live here in Aurora. And uh, when they got married, Karen and I were blessed to do their wedding. And they lived in Parkside at the time. And uh, before, well, it's a long story, but ultimately Parkside got new owners and they were essentially asked to leave because they were advocating for the poor residents there. Um, but anyway, while they were still living there, they got married. And so they decided for the reception, they were going to invite the entire Parkside to their wedding reception. They were going to have the wedding reception at Parkside and invite everybody. And their parents, who are beautiful Christian people, were like, are you sure? <laughs> and they're like, no, we're sure. So uh, one of the big things that would, was fun for the kids to do at Parkside is they would get borrow shopping carts from the um, grocery store a block away and they would put each other in the shopping carts and push around as fast as they could through the courtyard until they'd hit something and they'd dump out and the, okay so they couldn't have that going on at the reception so they rented this big bounce house so the kids would play there and they moved all the carts to down the street <laughs> and then somebody uh, in the in the community just decided you know what you guys don't have you don't have any carne man you don't have any tacos you know so like he just rolled out a grill and just added his tacos to the whole reception line it was amazing one of the best receptions I've ever been to and and think of that you know like you're invited everybody wants to be invited nobody wants to be excluded and that's the opportunity we get now when we don't invite as Christians here's what can sometimes happen we go from relational to promotional. We fly in, we shoot the video, we fly back out, and we feel awesome. And honestly, the people we were attempting to serve may not feel awesome, because they weren't invited. So I love that like during Holy Week, you guys did that Holy Week craft thing and invited people. And you're inviting people to the Backyard Bible Club and to the carnival, and you're inviting people. It's, it's that relational thing that is good news. All right, second, we proclaim good news to the poor when we say, you can contribute. You can contribute. Now, well, the first thing that we think of when we want to think good news to the poor is how can we give you money, right? And that is a part of what's going to have to happen, right? Jesus himself gave to the poor. Like when Judas disappears, everybody thinks, oh, Jesus must have told him to go give some money from our little team traveling account to the poor. So that was a part of the way Jesus lived. Um, and he says to a guy who comes to him once and wants to really be mature, he says, well, go and sell some stuff. Sell off some stuff. You've got enough stuff. And use cash in the money and, and give that to the poor. That'd be, that'd be a great next step for you in your spiritual development. And, and so there will be a time and a place for that. But is there a way we can also give the poor the dignity of making a contribution? Luke 21 is my text for this, in which, uh, just four verses, Luke 21, 1 to 4. 
As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins, maybe like 25 cents, 50 cents, like nothing. And Jesus says, I, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, why didn't Jesus like run over and see her about to give and go, no, 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 don't do that. You need that. That's all you got. You're going you're gonna to go hungry this week. You, that is, I know your heart, that's fabulous, but really, that is not okay. And he doesn't do that. Why does he not do that? Because he wants to give her the dignity of being able to contribute. Everybody wants to be a giver, not just a receiver. We all want to contribute, not just take. And that's wired into us as human beings. And when we don't give the poor the chance to contribute, we don't help them as much as we want to help them. And it's not as good news as it could otherwise be. Uh, we, we, we had this come up at Res when we were doing a capital campaign for the building. And the capital campaign consultant told us, okay, well, here's how it works. You, you do this private phase in which you go and talk to some of your largest potential donors. And then once they've all made their early commitments, advanced commitments, then you have what's called an advanced commitment night just for them. And it's kind of a special evening where you kind of honor them for their advanced commitment and their big commitment. Because then you can tell the whole congregation, hey, we had our advanced commitment night and we're already 40% of the way there or 50% of the way there, right? And that's just the way all these campaigns work. And we said, uh, yeah, but what about our person who can only give five bucks? Like we're saying we don't care about what they give, but it's subtly sending that message, isn't it? Like that you get the special night, you get the extra night if you are able to give more. And so we said, you know what? We're gonna do advanced commitment night for anybody who wants to make their commitment in advance. So we promoted it to everybody. So we had people there who, were, who could hardly give anything. And we're like, why should they be left out of the event? Okay, so you, you have to give everybody a chance to get in. I used to uh, help at PADS, the uh, Shelter for the Homeless in Wheaton, which is a great ministry, and so don't take this in any way as criticism of it, but let me tell you how I experienced it and then how I thought about it. I would uh, get up and arrive at the church in downtown Glen Ellen where was their shelter for the night at five in the morning or a little before five in the morning, and it was my job to be on the breakfast shift. So I would help make breakfast for the PADS guests. And so basically, since I don't have a lot of skills in the kitchen, I was making toast and buttering toast because I think they thought I wouldn't ruin that. And so I made a lot of toast and I buttered a lot of toast and then we would serve breakfast. The residents would eat and then we'd clean it all up and they would go on to their day. Okay. Which usually meant, you know, carrying around bags, backpacks, hanging out at the library till the librarians kick you out and then <laughs> hanging out somewhere else depending on where the, what, what the weather's like. And so... I th it was good because um, a, a portion of the PADS residents were long-term mentally ill. You probably didn't want them in the kitchen around knives and, and gas ovens. Okay, but I, I've thought a long time since, wouldn't have it been better if we had identified people who actually were safe in a kitchen with knives and stoves, and we had trained them and said, you know, we're going to train you in how to cook for 200 people. We're going to train you in basic chef skills, and we're going to, we're going to 
hook you up with somebody who has some restaurant skills. They're going to teach you how to do a breakfast for 200 on time, everything hot and, and all that. And you're going to feel awesome, you team of people, because you actually made the breakfast that your other fellow residents are eating. And now, guess what? You now have skills to go get a job in a restaurant kitchen. You can say, I've been cooking for 200 people for months. I totally know how to do that. That would have been better. I'm not saying what PADS was doing is bad. I'm just saying it didn't give the, the residents enough chance to contribute in a way. Okay, let me take another example. The Christmas gift drive. Now, when I was a kid, the way the Christmas gift drive worked was that church, they would distribute things and say, okay, we need like clothing for a female ages eight to 11 and a toy for a male 12 to 14. And so we would go to the store and pick out something that we thought was cool, right? And that worked. So a Nerf gun and maybe a sweater or something like this. And then it, we would wrap it up and then somebody would drop it off at the porch of the home of the folks who needed the Christmas gifts. Okay, now th I've thought about how, how that mom of that family feels when, after the gift gets dropped off. I couldn't do it. I'm busted down. My guy left me. I can't get a job. And I wanted to buy my own kids Christmas gifts and I couldn't do it. And then the kids open up the gift and guess what? That piece of clothing is one that that girl would never wear. It doesn't fit her very well. It's not the color she likes. She would never wear it to school because she'd get made fun of, whatever. So what was intended to be good and maybe can be in certain ways was not good. It was not good news. It was not as good as what Outreach Community Ministry has done, and I'm looking back here at Phil who works there. What they've gone to is you buy new gifts, and they give you the same sort of categories, right, to make sure they have a rounded out category, but you buy brand new. You give them to Outreach. Outreach sets up a Christmas store. The gifts are all discounted off of new, but they're all brand new. They're all discounted. And folks who need that extra financial boost to provide for their family at Christmas can come to that store and with their own money and pick out exactly what they want. You see how they're contributing now? They're contributing, this is what I want. This is the money I have. That is much better news for the poor. All right, last example. Um, at Res, we've had a long-term global partnership with uh, the Anglicans in Joss, Nigeria. I had a chance to travel there. They're a deeply persecuted church. They've had bombings, uh, five, churches burned down. They've lost probably 60% of their members who have fled south for greater safety. It's very difficult. And so one of the ways we've helped them over the years is what, with a project that they feel deeply about, which is actually building up their Bible school and their seminary there. So we gave them money for them to build a health clinic there to train health workers. And we gave them money for a dorm so that students could bring their spouse with them when they studied and not have to be separated from their families. And then we gave money that they used to buy adjacent land so they could expand the Bible school. So we've given them a lot of money. And in Nigerian Naira, a lot, a lot of money, okay? And, and it's beautiful, and they appreciate it. And when we were in our building campaign at Res, I forget who came up with this idea. It might have been Stuart, it might have been Keith. He said, we should ask them to give us money for the campaign. And my initial reaction was, are you kidding me? They barely have the money you know, to do what they're doing. Why are they gonna give money to us in the West to do it? And then I thought, no, that's brilliant. Why should they always 
be the, on the receiving end and not have the dignity of making a contribution. And they wrote a check. They didn't even think about it. They weren't insulted. They were like, thank you. Thank you for letting us give back. Thank you for letting us be a part of what you're doing and investing in what you're doing. Okay, so we proclaim good news when we say you're invited. We proclaim good news when we say you can contribute. Do you know there is nothing more radical, more revolutionary, more subversive of oppression and injustice than this book right here? Jesus was about it. He said, this is core to my identity. It's core to my mission. It's not extra credit. It's not if you want to. It is a part of our identity, our mission, as people united to Jesus Christ, to bring good news to those who are broken down, isolated, battered, abused. They have mental illness. They have kids with special needs. They have challenges. And we all have those same challenges, right? But in some way, we can contribute and help them, somebody who's in, also in a place of need. So as we close, I just want to invite Father Trevor to come up, and I want to pray for you guys as you head into mission, but also as you continue into this next season of life together as a church. You can't do this without the Spirit's power. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to do this. That's the only way you're going to be able to do it um, faithfully and, and over time. So let's pray. Father, you have united us to your son, Jesus Christ, who said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit now on these people whom you've placed here at Hill in Aurora to love their neighbors, serve their community, invite people, help people, give them opportunity to contribute and, and find dignity in that. Lord, would you teach us your ways? Show us how you look at things. Teach us how you think about things. Break down our isolation. Give us relationships. Lord, lead us with your creative, life-giving spirit to do more than we might even think we could. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.